0: This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. And I know this personally as I use Squarespace for my website and find it so easy to use with plenty of great templates to choose from to make it look super engaging and professional even for a technophobe like me. And if you need any more encouragement, here are some of the amazing things Squarespace offer. You can start a completely personalized website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint AI. You can also sell your products and services with an online store. From hand-knitted decorations to digital content or services, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. Squarespace supports entrepreneurship by helping you to easily manage your clients and invoices in one streamlined workflow. Head to squarespace.com forward slash fail 10. That's fail 1010 one for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code fail 10 to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. My guest today is Farah Storr, the award winning editor in chief of Cosmopolitan. Since taking the helm at the magazine in 2015, Storr has overseen an unprecedented 59% circulation rise, partly because of her bold and stimulating editorial choices, which include putting plus size model Tess Holiday on the cover in September, a decision that prompted a national conversation and a meltdown from Piers Morgan on Good Morning Britain. Surely the sign of a great judgment call. In 2017, Farah was named as one of only 36 BAME leaders in the UK and has also been a mentor on Britain's Next Top Model, which, as a reality TV obsessive, I personally find very exciting. In her brilliant first book, The Discomfort Zone, Storr writes eloquently about how doing what scares you can sometimes be the pathway to success, And given her extraordinary achievements at such a young age, the three incidences of failures she has chosen to talk about today absolutely prove this to be the case. So Farah, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. We're in the Cosmopolitan offices. It's a very busy office, so you might hear people on the phone or tapping away. But thank you very much for inviting us into your work world. No, thanks for coming in. And it's a real pleasure to meet you because we've actually just been chatting before the podcast started about failure and discomfort in relation to your book. But I wonder if you could talk to me a bit about your relationship with failure. How do you feel about it? Well it's changed I think like lots of things
1: because now of course I celebrate failure and and actually I tried to take the shame out of failure but it's taken like almost 40 years to get to that place and actually as a kid I was kind of very high achieving perfectionistic child so failure was not anything that I wanted on my radio I didn't want it anywhere near me and so It's taken a very long time to, A, get to grips with it, and B, to see the benefits of it. I'm very open with all of my team at Cosmo now that if you're failing for the right reasons, you know, don't fail because you're just careless and crap and can't really, you know, don't really give a shit. But if you're failing because you're trying something new and you're going into uncharted territory, then it's a good thing and and it's to be applauded. Because
0: you talk in the book about BMD, brief moments of discomfort, and the idea that discomfort is only ever fleeting. Right. And it's something that I've learned too, that when you're in the grip of a panic, you need to remind yourself consciously, it's going to pass and it will be okay.
1: Yeah, I mean, what's that thing? This too shall pass. I mean, I always think about that and I have done all my life. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's why people don't go into things because they think experiences are, I don't think this is a word, but a kind of monolithically or entirely composed of discomfort. And of course, that's not true. You know, most difficult experiences, you can break it down, you know, into what scares you the most. And usually there'll only be about three points I kind of worked out. So for me, if I'm public speaking, I used to hate the beginning bit because when you have to get everyone's attention, found it hopeless middle bit where perhaps I would forget my lines or something. And then I always used to struggle with an ending. How do you give like a victorious sign off? And I I think one of the things I always think is like, you should only really concentrate on the things you can control. If you can figure out a plan for those brief moments that you're really scared of, and you can always figure out a plan, then everything in between is kind of as easy as breathing. It it really is. And, And weirdly can become enjoyable. So it's that idea
0: that preparation is power. Yeah, absolutely. And you told me that as a child you competed in lots of athletics competitions. Yeah. Did that teach you about the necessity of preparation and stress management? Do you know what? I don't think it did because
1: I, I kind of was competing at a very high level, but it was very much like just get on the track, and just run. And and, and really, we were all kids with raw talent. We didn't actually get any of the, the preparation, I think, from the coaches. And they were great people, but, you know, there were people doing it in their spare time. So it was really interesting athletics as a, as a child doing it because you have all this raw talent. And then if I lost and I lost a lot, you just thought you were a complete failure. And actually, I think, had I been taught about the psychological preparation in competing, I don't think... I mean, I left athletics because I just lost too many times, and I was like, this is just ridiculous. And of course, I did what lots of kids do, is I blamed other people for it, rather than looked at it myself, that actually maybe it wasn't preparing the right way, maybe it just wasn't good enough. So, no, But and I think it was a missed opportunity. I think sports is
0: a really good opportunity for kids to learn how to prepare for the discomfort of failure. It's so interesting you say that, actually, because recently I interviewed for a piece that I was writing, Writing the sports psychologist at Chelsea FC, and he said exactly that: that as a child, you often associate failure with a personal failing in a race or in a squash yeah. match, and that the key to being an elite athlete or footballer, in this case, was to see a game as just a game yeah. and not to attach too much outside pressure to it. Which
1: yeah. I'd agree with that, but but emotion, you I suppose, when you're younger. People don't tell you, and adults still do it, we think emotionally, and I try to take that out of everything now. If you can take the emotion out, I think he's absolutely right, and see it as just a game. You can, A, become at peace with failure, but you can also then dissect the failure. I think when you start to take it really personally, that's when you don't want to go near it, and you don't want to investigate what went wrong, because it's too injuring to yourself.
0: And as a child, when you lost a race... How would that manifest itself? Were you a crier as a child or or did you get angry?
1: No, I wasn't a crier, but I was really hard on myself. So it was very much like, you're crap, you're just not good enough. And I would give up. So actually, even in races, people always used to say, the problem with you far is you're brilliant. When you come out of the starting block, I was always winning. So from the beginning of the race, I was always leading. And then I didn't really have the stamina. I did 100 metres. It was just that bit too far for me and when I would see people passing me I'd start to slow down Mm. and so my finish was always terrible and actually it's one of my failings I think now in life is that I'm not a good I don't see things through so I need a team around me who can I'm great at the ideas I'm great at getting things out the starting block but I'm very bad at the finishing and I think with races I gave up before I even hit the finish line and so rather than investigate what went wrong I would beat myself up and then I would, well, I left athletics altogether. and I think I left at my peak when I was really good. Then I became, well, I became kind of obsessed with academia after that.
0: How interesting. I'm a person of extremes, Elizabeth. (laughs) Yes, I love it. I I mean, you're talking to someone who absolutely hates running, which is something I've spoken about on the podcast before. I'm terrible at it, so I'm just in awe of anything. (laughs) Anything you achieved. But talking about a failing to follow through, it brings us on to your first instance of failure, which was that when you were little, you were chosen to sing the Christmas carol song along with another girl. How did you feel about that? Or did you feel you were good at singing? Do you know what? I,
1: I have to say, the other girl was called, it's weird, isn't it? You remember, she's called Heather Pilkington. And she was really good. And, and it was one of those things as a child, you are aware that somebody is much better than you. She was much better. And so when I was chosen, I have to say, part of me was like, Really? But the fact that they chose two of us in itself was slightly suspect. So yeah, it, it was amazing, you know, because I hadn't really shown any promise at, at that stage at school. I didn't really stand out. There was nothing really remarkable about me. So to actually be picked to sing um, the solo, what is it called, once in Royal David City, mm-hmm. it was a really big deal for me. And I, as all children want to do, I felt really special. But of course, it didn't feel so special when I actually performed because I
0: was terrible. <laughs> And I'm going to ask you to sing it now. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, so you were, you knew you were terrible, or do you think you were just beating yourself up about being terrible? Possibly. I, do
1: you know what? I think I was above average. But again, I suppose it goes to the perfectionistic nature. I didn't think I was good enough to do it. But obviously, a teacher had taken a chance on me for whatever reason. And kindness, perhaps, because I always tried really hard. You know, one thing I do do is I always say I'm not particularly talented, but I throw everything into stuff. I work really hard. And I sung the carol. I, I think I, I did the first night and then Heather did the second. And I only ever got one night because they never asked me. And I think we had a week of it. And Heather did the remaining week and I got taken off. And I, I remember when I was singing the solo, my voice cracked. And again, probably like the race, really, I suppose, when I was in the middle of singing, my voice cracked. I thought, this is the end. I can't do this. And obviously the teacher decided the same and I wasn't ever brought back again it was really hard because it was humiliating you know and humiliation at that age is really difficult even though people were kind no one ever told me why they'd taken me off you know Mm. as a I think I may have been 11 you know why you were taken off so there was real shame shame attached to it do you know what happened to Heather Pilkington
0: are you friends with her on Facebook no
1: (laughs) I'm not I don't use my Facebook I do not know what happened to her she was very very nice girl I never felt any ill will towards her But no, it's amazing that I still remember her name, to be honest. Well, isn't
0: it incredible, actually, how clearly you remember that thing that happened in childhood at the age of 11? And I think so many of those experiences are so formative that you do remember someone's name, you know, 30 years on from that. But what do you think you took from that? Did you take anything positive from learning how to cope with public humiliation?
1: I think what I learnt was that because I always hung on to it and it's always something that I've lived by. And, and some people sometimes may say I'm a little bit blunt, but it's about trying to be honest with people and, and explaining to them why something isn't good enough. I think that was the thing. And I think the teacher was very, I think she was called Mrs Schofield, was very well-meaning, she was a lovely lady. And she would have had her reasons for doing it. Perhaps she thought I was too fragile, you know, perhaps that was the way of my school was to coddle the kids. She thought the best thing to do was to not tell me. But now I always think what I take from that is... People know. I think people know when they're not performing properly. And so the kindest thing you can do is actually take them aside and tell them and work through the failure with them because, you know, if it was that my voice wasn't strong enough, it cracked, it couldn't reach the right notes. I think if somebody had dissected it and gone, well, here, you're you're 80% good at this, but the 20%, the finish through again, this is what you need to do. I think I would have stuck with it. And I think that's the thing with failure is never walk past a mistake. And I think a lot of my life, certainly when I was a kid, I walked past a lot of mistakes and I think the school, rightly or wrongly, no one ever talked to me about why I got taken off and I never sang again. I don't do karaoke, I don't go near singing, I I don't like it, it makes me deeply uncomfortable. Wow. So you're going to ask me to do karaoke
0: now? No, well I don't do karaoke either (laughs) unless it's rapping because I can't sing but I can rap because it's just speaking words quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'll do that. I believe that's how Dr Dre thinks of rapping. Um, Did you fit in at school? Did you like school? Yeah, I did like school.
1: I didn't have a lot of friends by choice. I was very much about intimate friendships. So I had a best friend who I was very, 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 very close to. So again, it's the extremes. It's all or nothing. I wasn't good in big groups because people laugh and think I'm an extrovert. But that's something I've had to build towards because I kind of looked at the world and saw, rightly or wrongly, then actually, if you want to get ahead. Unfortunately, and I think it's changing now, that being quite intense, being quite introverted probably wasn't going to be the way forward for me, but that's my natural disposition. Yeah, so too. Yeah, but unfortunately, and I think it is changing, it's not the people I saw at the top of the table, so I, I changed. But at school, I was really happy. It was my one friend... And it was about study and athletics for a little while. So I was an an intense brooding child.
0: Because I wanted to ask you a bit, I actually want to embarrass you by quoting uh, something that you wrote in in one of your many fantastic pieces. This one was for the Times magazine and it was about how you dress. And you talk about your upbringing and the fact that your father was from Pakistan. Yeah. And you talk about growing up in inner city Manchester and you write, it was a place where the only Asians people knew ran the local greengrocers and my father was that man. You were a Paki whether you were Indian, Bangladeshi or even from Tehran. On Saturdays, slap bang in front of boots, a group of snarly men in leather jackets, black boots and close-cropped hair would sit and stare. My mother always walked on the opposite side of the road. I think that's so evocative and I wanted to ask you how aware you were of all of those things when you were growing up and the racism that underlay them.
1: Yeah. Well, interestingly, when my dad read that, my mum went, you know, it was a delicatessen fire. It wasn't a greengrocer's. <laughs> um, so, so I got in a lot of trouble for that. They sold fruit and veg, you know what I mean? But he, he actually, you know, he, he left that soon after. Well, look, I mean, you know what I look like for those listeners who don't. I kind of can pass for anything. Oh Well, well that's <laughs> very kind. But I could pass for anything, and actually a lot of the time. I tried to pass for something else. So there was deep shame attached to being half Pakistani. And, you know, my dad, he changed his name from Javed to Jerry. He kind of anglicised himself, not because of any sort of deep, seated self-hatred but to get along and get ahead I mean God he told me this and we'll probably get in trouble he told me he used to wear a Star of David so he'd get more customers in the shop I like all Dad, the bases. yeah I was like yeah exactly <laughs> but yeah I was really ashamed of it and I'll never forget the. One, and this is could be because before the podcast we were talking about how I hate parties and I had a party once I think I was eight and it was at the Happy Eater just outside Manchester City Centre and I don't know why I decided to have a party I think I thought it was the dumb thing mm. and I had a party and my mum used to drop me off at school so my mum is blonde hair, blue eyed so people kind of just presumed I was English or sometimes you know kind of wildly glamorous in Italian or Spanish and I kind of didn't ever say any different but to get two carloads of kids to the happy eater from my school in Whitefield my mum had to take some kids and my dad had to take some kids I'll never forget there were two girls and one of the little girls saw my dad and she went <gasps> and, and she looked horrified and I remember the other little girl patted her hand and went shh And so it really stayed with me. And so I was aware that I was different to everyone. But you know what, I never let it hold me back because someone said to me recently, she said, God, how have you survived as a woman and a woman of colour? And I said to her, I said, can I just stop you there? I said, I don't see myself as that. I said, if I just got distracted and if I said, oh, I didn't get that job because I'm a woman or I didn't get that job because I'm half Pakistani, I said, I wouldn't achieve anything. It's not useful to, to think like that. And actually, Elizabeth, I don't think it ever has stopped me from getting ahead. I really don't think it has. But yeah, as a kid, it was uncomfortable. Yeah, it was uncomfortable. And how important
0: is that to what you do now like are you very aware of having people of colour in your pages and representing a cross-section of society
1: yeah and actually it's everything it's colour it's sexuality it's men do you know what we have loads of men in the magazine and also because I suppose my big thing and I'm always going on at this at work but it's like if you start to think in terms of groups, it's a really dangerous way to see it. So even though I am half Pakistani, I'm me, I can have very individual feelings and thoughts to somebody else who is half Pakistani. And so sometimes I worry, I suppose, about group think that if you just see people as a group you know it's a bit like when you did sports day and, and your teacher would separate you from your best friend and they'd go you're in team a and you're in team b you stop to see the other person as individual you just see it as a group and it's a really dangerous thing to do so do i see myself as a woman of color i kind of am but i kind of see myself as far but yes i'm very mindful of do we have a good representation of everyone in the magazine and also give voices to those people. So, you you know, we did a, a really interesting piece this month about a lady who had been raped when she was at Columbia University, and I'm sure you'll know a lot of the the beginnings of Me Too happened at Columbia with, with Mattress Girl. And this lady's experience was very, very different in that she said the rape was terrible, of course, but it didn't break me. What broke her was when the sisterhood turned on her. And it's really interesting. So people could see that this is a story about rape, and they think it's going to be one thing, but her interpretation of that terrible situation was very different to what you would expect. So my big thing and it's the same with the test holiday thing is I don't try to call anyone trolls everyone is totally allowed to have an opinion and as long as that kind of shakes up people's thought processes then I'm all for it
0: yeah that makes total sense
1: yeah so from- I've gone off tangent no
0: I, I mean there's a whole I know I'm there's a whole pile of tangents there that I want right. to follow up but I feel like that's for a private conversation that right. will last for many hours possibly into 1 a.m in the morning. fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for
1: years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only
0: from NPR. But going back on track, so we were talking about you at school and the fact that you were happy at school. Yeah. You studied hard. And when you left school, you applied to Oxford University, which brings us on to your second failure. My second failure,
1: yeah. (laughs) Well, actually, it wasn't even just applying when I was 17. I'd been working towards it from about 13. So I left kind of abandoned athletics and my obsession with athletics. So I was very much, I didn't even watch it. I just to love watching it on the TV. I just abandoned it. Wow. Yeah, so so cult- Are you like turkey.
0: that, sorry, just, are you like that kind of personally too? Like if someone hurts you, are you capable of just compartmentalising it and moving on? And I just, have been, yeah, yeah, yeah
1: I, I have been. I, I th- probably like it in a lot of things in life, and that is my failing, that's a failure I need to work on, is that there's a little bit more in between far. It's not black and white, which comes with age. But yeah, so from kind of 13... I knew, I was really good at always having a goal, and the goal was I wanted to get to Oxford. And I think it's lots of different reasons. I think one is I was a middle child, so I wasn't really, you know, in Asian culture, generally speaking, your firstborn is your special kid, and then after that you had my brother, But so he's the boy, you know, who's special. And then you have your youngest who is special. And so being the third out of four didn't really felt like I had a place in my dad's eyes. My dad always used to think I was quite, because I like Barbie dolls, and although he does always say... used to shave off the Barbie dolls heads he said it was really sinister
0: amazing (laughs) amazing facts
1: (laughs) (laughs) so so I think by being academic I knew that and and this is true again generally speaking of a lot of immigrants the way forward is you pursue education to get yourself out of whatever and so I remember thinking I wanted to get to Oxford but really it was a lot to prove to my dad that I was not worthy because he loved me so much but I wanted to be special I think it's all anybody wants Mm -hmm. to be I want to be noticed and so from 13 right up to 17 I just worked like a demon and all I wanted was to go to Oxford and of course when I got there and they have like what well, did you go to Oxford? I went to Cambridge <laughs> Went to
0: Cambridge? <laughs> That's the most annoying response ever <laughs> to that question sorry
1: So it's like three days of interviews or something or it was when I went and I remember I got there, and I was very different. But again, I didn't think about the colour thing, because I've tried never to do that. But I was, when I look back, all the kids, I was the only person of vague colour. But it was more, I noticed there was a class thing, actually. So it wasn't about colour, it was like, I was the only person with like a big northern accent. And everybody else was lovely. And I went through the interview process, and again, in the interview process, they didn't really ask me very challenging questions. And again, a bit like the running, I suppose, I kind of knew in the middle of the interview that I wasn't going to get in. I just thought, do you know what, for whatever reason, I'm not sure that I'm going to be accepted. And of course, they always give you the acceptance or rejection letter just before Christmas. I remember getting the letter and it was, it was rejection. But you know, what? I was devastated. I was absolutely devastated because I couldn't see a way out at that point. But I think because I'd known when I was doing the interview, I was slightly prepared for it. But you know, Elizabeth, if I'd really wanted to go, I could have waited a year and I could have got my grade and I could have tried again. I actually think when I look back at Oxford now, given what I've told you about myself, quite extremist, very, I was at that point really intense. I'm not sure it would have been the best place for me. I just don't think it would have been. And of course, I then went to King's College and I came down to London and Because I was in London, I started to do journalism on the side. And and so I would have gone down a very different path. And probably it would have fed into a different side of my personality.
0: What were you applying to read at Oxford? English. And is that what you did at King's? I did English and French.
1: OK. No, do you know what I tell a lie? It was in English and French I did. uh, I applied at Worcester College in Oxford. And I
0: did English and French at King's. And because so much of it had been wrapped up with wanting to make your father proud. Yeah. What was it like when you had to tell him that you hadn't got in?
1: Well, I think that's why I dealt with it probably better because I I have to say, I thought that if I didn't get in, I was a bit worried about what would happen to me, but my dad didn't really give a shit. (laughs) It's like, he didn't, and that was the most liberating thing, And and I thought he would be deeply disappointed, but he wasn't. His reaction, weirdly, was not what, I expected and that made it a lot easier for me and of course as I now know the expectation he never expected it it always came from me there's a drive within me so no so so actually even though I felt a real failure at the time I think my dad's saying it's fine it softened it
0: and do you feel as I do that part of your drive comes from proving people wrong who underestimated you yeah yeah, I, I think so. Do you know what I'll never forget?
1: I mean, my poor dad. But I'll never forget, again, I must have been about six or seven, and my dad saying to someone, Tammy, who's my sister, Tammy's a clever one and Far is the pretty one. And I don't think he knows that I overheard it. And again, I'm not blaming my dad for any of this, because I think within me, you know, it's a nature-nurture. I think I am a very driven person naturally. I think kids that do sports are very driven. I think doing athletics made me perhaps more driven than my siblings but yeah, I think it was about wanting to be seen as exceptional and wanting to prove to people. And and so actually, th- through a lot of my teenage years, you know, I used to wear glasses and make myself kind of look really unattractive. And it was all about academia for me. So yeah, the damage parents do—it's
0: so interesting. <laughs> I t- I totally understand that because those sorts of comments stick with you. Yeah. Because you hear them at such an impressionable age.
1: Yeah, and you don't take them in any context, do you? You know, of course, it was like, well, Farah's also kind and she's, she's smart. But, but yeah, you, you see the world in black and white. And it was like, I don't want to be just seen as a pretty little girl. It just didn't interest me.
0: And again, when you got that rejection letter from Oxford, on a practical level, how did you process and cope with it? Well, I didn't go off the rails but I wound back the work quite a lot, got a
1: boyfriend, just lived actually. And weirdly, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I just loosened my own harness that I'd built myself. Yeah, I just relaxed. I chilled out a lot. And I think I didn't do it in a self-care kind of way. I actually did it in a... Well, if Oxford don't want me, then what's the point? But actually, weirdly, it was kind of a weird sort of self-care that I needed. I mean, I didn't really process that failure. My way of processing was was going out and getting a bit on it, I suppose. But not terribly on it. I mean, I'm not that excited. I'm not that interesting. <laughs> you know, now I look at mistakes and I, I set them.
0: I didn't <laughs> then. I didn't, know. So you sound to me just from a couple of things that you've said that you're very in tune with your own instinct.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think
0: so. Is that something that you've always had or that's developed over time? Because I think it can be quite difficult in the noisy world in which we now live to tune back into that instinct and to know what your gut is telling you. I think I've always been like that. I think it comes from spending a lot of time alone. I'm very good
1: with solitude. I'm very good at listening to my gut because... And I suppose I have a slightly different interpretation of gut because it's not gut, is it? It's pattern recognition. So I'm really good at seeing a situation and recognising that, well, I've done that before. And actually, because I've done it before, I now know how to deal with this situation. But I've always been really self-aware. When it comes from two things, it comes from writing. I've always written, I've always kept a diary to kind of make sense of things because I've never had lots of friends to talk about things. The way I process things is I write about them publicly sometimes. And yeah, I think it's time alone. I mean, even now, you know, my thing is gardening and that is time alone. It's working towards a goal because, you know, you've got to have a goal to work towards. I think that's the human condition. needs something to strive for. But The solitude is really important to me to to make sense of. I mean, you must have that with writing. If you can't think of something, you go off and take a walk or do whatever, and then it it just comes to you. Absolutely,
0: absolutely. And I'm a big proponent of the notion of sitting on a bus and not doing anything, just looking out of the window and not feeling that that is wasted time, because actually you need to leave the field fallow for a bit Absolutely. in order to grow anything.
1: Absolutely. And actually, sometimes it's the most precious time, isn't its it is, It's all making... It, because it's all within you. It, it sounds like very Oprah, but it is within you. You've just got to trust yourself that you know the answer. But you don't just know the answer from out of nowhere. That's where you've got to you throw yourself
0: into things. Mm-hmm. And the more you throw yourself into things, the more the answers will kind of bubble up. You mentioned solitude there. And I know that many people listening to this will probably have read again, your brilliant writing on yours and your husband's decision to be child-free. And I really wanted to talk to you about that because I think, again, not having a child for a woman is seen by certain other people as a failure. But actually, what you have done by owning it and by writing about it so eloquently is show that it's not a failure at all. It's actually a form of your success, can you tell us a bit about coming to that decision?
1: Yeah, so again, I think it was one of those things that you blithely think you're going to do is like, I've ticked off everything else. It's the having it all thing, isn't it? Which Cosmo came up with, and it's not incredibly helpful advice. I'd got to like 35, and I had a really happy marriage, and we'd moved to the country, we had a dog, and it was like, right, what's next? And it's like, oh, we have kids... And we, we never took it as seriously as I think, perhaps. That's why I think there was a feeling within me that perhaps it wasn't right. But we tried. We tried half-heartedly. I mean, my husband always jokes at the fertility monitor, gather dust. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. But we tried, and we tried, and it didn't happen. And actually, my mum said this recently. She goes, you, you've you been really at peace with not being able to have kids. Because the ages of 13 to 16, I'm going to sound like such a mess up, I had an eating disorder as well, and so I didn't have periods for years. And so there was always a feeling when I was growing up that I wonder whether I will have problems conceiving later in life. So I wonder if in the background that knowledge meant I wasn't as devastated when it didn't happen. So anyway, it didn't happen. And then we went down, I had made an appointment, I think it was at Canterbury, to talk about IVF. And the lady went through, you know... It's like forty-two percent chance, and I was like, "Is that it?" And she went, "It's really good, Farah." And I was like, "Oh!" And then I just got back home, and I I was like, "Do you know what? I'm not sure I want this enough because obviously, going through IVF—I know lots of people who've had—it's really hard. It can do damage to the relationship. I didn't think I wanted kids enough to go through it, and so I remember I walked—I just think I walked into the bedroom, and I just said to Will, my husband, I went. I'm not sure I want to go through with this. And 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 I'm so grateful. He was like, I'm so glad you said that because I feel exactly the same. And we just kind of made peace with it. Of course, the world around didn't make peace. A lot of people, rather than seeing me as a failure, I think a lot of people's interpretation was, oh, it's such a shame because mm-hmm. you'd make such good parents. But... It's enough for me. I mean, I always say it's like having it all-ish and that's kind of what I've got. I've got the good career. I know what makes me tick, which is nature and solitude and my dogs. And I have a really good marriage and that's kind of enough for me. And and it is, life is sacrifice. You don't get to have it all. You just don't. And if you can make peace with that, then you're probably going to be happier down the line.
0: Having it all-ish is amazing and I want it on a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like my favourite new motto. It's you the best m- you can hope for, yeah. I think. You mentioned that... Having an eating disorder as a teenager. Yes. Have you made peace with that? Because I know it's something that doesn't go away that you have to live with every single day. Yeah, I mean, I had disordered eating
1: right up until I think, which is ironic, that I went to Glossy Magazines, of course, right up until I was about late 20s. So, you know, it was quite bad when I was kind of a teenager. And then it was always disordered. Yeah, it was late 20s. And do you know what I think it was? I think by my late 20s, I kind of got into my stride with my career, certainly with my writing and what I wanted to do. And it probably took the emphasis off the way I looked. That's one of the reasons why, you know, the whole... Uproar about Tess Holiday. It's not really about obesity. I don't think people look at that and go, "That's going to spark an obesity epidemic." Because the truth is, and maybe I've been guilty of this, is thin is everywhere, and thin has always been seen as a symbol of success. And so, I think with this cover and and all the covers we do, and we we have plus size, we have plus size women. I mean, actually, our model shoots. I was saying to my fashion director recently. We don't even really go to model agents anymore. We use real people. I mean, that's what we do. It's all—it's changed a lot. I think it would have been helpful for me growing up to have seen what different bodies can look like. I mean, that's not to blame the culture. I always take acceptance for everything. You know, you've got to look within yourself because you can't change what you can't control. But, yeah, I think perhaps my achievements elsewhere in my life kind of made me think as I got older do you know what, you can take the emphasis off the way you you look now. And I think that's a good thing for getting older, you know, as you lose your looks as you get older. Something else has got to take up the slack. And I think for me, career, but not only career, just contentment in my my relationship and my home life, I think takes the slack for me.
0: Well, talking of your career, your third failing is about when you had a big job when you lived in Australia. Yeah. And you failed at it. In what way did you fail?
1: Oh, it was dreadful.
0: I was terrible. (laughs) And you know what?
1: I got greedy, Elizabeth, because I'd gone to Australia, I'd got a job on a really nice magazine, and then this other magazine, who I cannot name, but was a big... It was a fashion magazine. And, you know, working on a fashion magazine, I'd never really worked on a fashion magazine, so it was, like, a really big deal. And it did very serious journalism. A job came up there, and I'd only been in my job, which took me out to Australia for about six months, and then I left and took this job. And it was a pretty hard environment, I have to say, but that's all right. I just don't think I was good enough. I didn't do a good job on editing people's pieces. I don't think my ideas were right. And you know what it's like. I mean, I don't know if you've ever had those jobs. Sometimes you have those jobs where you're no good and then everybody else starts to get a sense of it. And then the kind of everyone starts to turn a little bit. It's not turn on you because they were good, decent people, but they kind of remove themselves from you. It's like the smell in the room, isn't it? And, and, and you feel it. Yeah, I, do you know what? I left, though, rather than get pushed out, which I'm sure at the end they probably would have fired me. Although, I don't know, because I wasn't bad enough to be fired. I just wasn't really, really good. And because I was running a big department, I just wasn't good enough to do that job. And so I left. Yeah, I, I left with a lot of shame, I think, with that job. But I did look back on that job. And I've seen the editor since, and, and I get on really well with her. And I think for a long time, because the easiest thing to do is to go well, it was the people, it was the person in charge. That's why I failed. It's not. And also, you can't control that. So I have no ill will to her. I think she's an exceptional editor. I just think that I wasn't ready for that job.
0: And did you choose to leave? Yeah, I chose to leave. And and was it, again, that you were choosing to leave before the race was finished, in a way? You could tell that you were failing. And
1: I could see the way it was going, (coughs) and I could see... And I think once in your lifetime, you will have these jobs where... You've just gone a bit too far down the road that you probably can't pull it back. And you know when that's going to happen. And actually, I always think, again, maybe it's listening to myself, that once you're so far down the road that nothing's really going to change unless, you know, you win a Pulitzer and then the whole world suddenly thinks you're brilliant, which was definitely not going to happen to me at that point. You've got to get out because if you just keep on hanging in there, I think you can get to a point where it it does destroy self-esteem. And so I got out, and I was lucky. Another wonderful magazine kind of rescued me, actually, and were like, we want you to come work for us, and I had a great time there. But I, I do always look back on that job and think... For a long time, I was very angry and I blamed other people, but it was
0: not their fault, it was me. Wrong time for that job, I think. You've mentioned during the course of our conversation your lovely husband, Will Storr. Yes. Brilliant novelist and non-fiction writer. And my favourite thing about your relationship, again, which I've gleaned from your journalism, is that it started with a failed first date. (laughs) Yes, yes. So you were set up on a blind date, is that right? Yeah, so he worked with my sister on Loaded magazine. She was the
1: features director. She consequently then married the editor. So it's like this weird thing where... My husband, his old boss is now his brother-in-law. It's very odd. (laughs) And, yeah, my sister thought it was a good idea that me and Will got together, based on what, I don't know. You know, he was kind of, well, actually, he probably on paper was my type. He was troubled and he was brooding and he was a writer. And we went on a date at the Falcon pub in Clapham and I was mad about someone else at the time and I spent the entire day going on about this other guy and poor Willard turned up in a new Ted Baker shirt which he'd bought and shiny shoes which I thought was awful because <laughs> the guy I was obsessed with didn't really like me It didn't really give a shit about me and would turn up because he didn't care, in dirty shoes. And so this guy had made an effort. And I was like, oh, God, who oh, wants gross. this chap? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, so I just monologued him the whole time about how great this other guy was. And then we left the pub and he walked me to the train station and he hated me. And my sister was hiding behind a bin, she tells me, with her <laughs> watching, seeing how it was going. And I think for a distance it looked like it was going well. And there was a homeless I think it was a chap, there's a homeless chap at the entrance to Clapham North tube station and Will gave him, I think he gave him a tenner and I was like, oh my God, what have you done that for? He's only going to put it in his arm and Will, went, Will just looked at me and kind of shouted, good! And then he just got <laughs> on the train and went home and, and, and so, yeah, I mean, he hated me. I, I, I mean, I didn't hate him, I just thought he wasn't right for me but it was a total failure. I mean, it was one of the worst dates I've ever had and for him he goes, oh my God, I thought you were absolutely hideous. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I know. (laughs) But then it all...
1: But then years went by. Yeah, because he worked for my sister. He was always kind of on my radar. And actually, he says the moment he fell for me was there used to be a a club night in Soho called It's On, And all of the guys from Loaded would go and, you know, would have a great time. And it was a very raucous place. And I remember I used to go because I thought it's what I should do. I think I thought I should network, actually, because I was very young at that point. And I remember sitting in a dark corner by myself... And I don't know why, but I started crying because I just didn't like anyone around me. I didn't like what they stood for. I didn't like, I I think everything was just too much. I was in my early 20s. And Will came over and he was like, are you all right? And I said to him, I hate everyone in here. And he went, yes, so do I. And he said, that's the moment that there was a connection. He was like, I really like her. She's different. And actually, after that, we became friends. I think he invited me to an art gallery. And we became very, very good friends. Of course, I had lots of boyfriends throughout that time. Will didn't have anyone. And then I think about three years into our friendship, and it was a really intense friendship. I used to live in town at that point, and he would cycle over from Brixton, where he lived, and we would then walk around the city of London until like three in the morning just talking. And I remember he went to Glastonbury, and he phoned me from Glastonbury, and he said, oh, do you know what? There's loads of really funny things here. He said, but nobody would find them funny in the way you do. And then at the end of the conversation, he went, but I have met someone, and I just, oh, my God. And I just said to him, I went, I think you should come back to London. And he went, really? I went, yeah. And then he got on, so it was the Saturday night, Glastonbury. He got on the train. He came all the way back. He came to my flat. He just must have got in at about two. And I remember I was putting on makeup, and I was like, this is really weird that I'm putting on makeup to see Will. And I opened the door, and we kissed. And so, weirdly, I always said, God, it's so unromantic because we were best friends, and Will's like... It's the most romantic because there was something greater at work. Again, I guess it's like your body knows. It knows what's right for you. All those feelings, your kind of limbic system, it knows more than your perceptual system sometimes. It just knows what's right for you.
0: I wish people could see my face right now because it's <laughs> like I'm grinning but I've also got tears in my eyes because that is it's very the sweet. most romantic yeah. story.
1: It's like a film. yeah. But it took a long time, you know, the relationship for years. It was like, oh, is this right? It's not this big coup de fou there. I, I was worried, and he was, that friendship wasn't the best recipe for a long-lasting love affair. And of course, it's been the very best recipe. But when you're 23, I didn't know if it was
0: exciting enough. Well, that's the thing, because I think in your 20s, you're looking for fireworks. That's it. And you're looking for the rom-com yeah. narrative. And that's, that's what you expect. And then you just think, well, I'm not going to settle for anything less. That's but it. actually... I think the best fireworks can come as a result of a slow burn. Totally. I mean, that's
1: what, when, you know, will never seen When Harry Met Sally, and I, he watched it like a few weeks ago, and he's like, oh, God, he went, actually, kind of is the stuff of rom-coms, it's just not exactly the fireworks, which I thought you needed in your twen- early 20s, you needed to have fireworks with someone. And actually, you don't. You're right. The fireworks can come in your 40s. And I really have. I mean, I was talking about it the other day and someone went, you should see what happens to your face when you talk about your husband. She went, it's, it, it's quite exceptional. So, yeah, they come.
0: And that's a hugely successful and fulfilling relationship that has come out of failure, which is really what this podcast is yeah, all about. Totally. I mean, totally. So far. if you have a
1: terrible first date,
0: <laughs> investigate it or yes. go on another one. Don't discount it. Don't discount it. Did being on Britain's Next Top Model as a mentor, did it teach you how to pose and photographs?
1: Oh, God, no. I still can't. If you look at my Instagram, I can't see myself in pictures. When people, I mean, we'll probably take a picture after this and I'll go, yeah, I don't want to look at it. No, it didn't. It didn't at all. What did it teach me? Well, it taught me, actually, I was pretty mean to people, but it did teach me that, actually, you've got to tell people like it is. No point telling someone. That's never going... It's a bit like the X Factor, you know, when these kids are raised on. You're amazing. You can be anything you want to be. Sometimes you can't be, and, and you just need... The kindest thing you can do sometimes is tell someone, you're probably not cut out for this. So, yeah, I had a really mean streak in it. But, yeah, no posing for pictures.
0: And what do you think of Meryl Streep in The Devil Wears Prada and Are You Like Her? No I, d- no, I don't. No, I'm not like her <laughs>
1: at all. Yeah, and, and sometimes you get a bit insulted because when people yeah. go, "God, you're not at all what I thought an editor would be like." But I am tough in different ways. So I'm really tough on. I mean, everybody wants to be seen as fair. I may not be fair, but I'm really tough on editing because I still edit pretty much every single page, and I go through it line by line with people. So that's where my toughness comes in. But no, and and also you've seen my desk. I don't have a glamorous life. I mean, I don't. You know, and actually, if you go into journalism for that. Gonna be really disappointed.
0: Yeah, never go into journalism for glamour no. or money. <laughs> well, you go
1: for the richness of the experience, don't you? Because as you know, if like me you're an introvert and you don't like small talk, you get to ask really nosy questions to really brilliant people. I say this all the time. Yeah.
0: You're so right. It's yeah. a wonderful shortcut. So you don't it's have to amazing. do any of that awful networking stuff in that yeah. horrible nightclub in Soho surrounded by people you don't do. You don't, don't have
1: like. to do it, no. You go straight into talking about the the stuff that matters. And sometimes, I guess this goes back to my friendships. Sometimes that's enough. The friendship doesn't go anywhere after that, but it's enough that you had that amazing conversation and you connected
0: for a little bit. That's enough for me. Forestor, <laughs> we've had an amazing conversation. We've connected for a little bit. Thank you so much. It's been really, really wonderful talking to you, and thank oh, you so thank much you. for being so sharing and open. And now we've very got welcome. to take that selfie that we'll both hate. Oh God, okay. <laughs> thank you very much. You're very welcome.